Good morning. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Janine. This is Get the Funk Out. Very excited for the first half of my show. I am joined by Jennifer Egan, and she is among the most celebrated writers of our time. She's a literary figure with cult status and winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award for her magnificent book, A Visit from the Goon Squad. Her latest book, The Candy House, is a sibling to that novel. It's an electrifying, deeply moving story about the quest for authenticity and meaning in a world where memories and identities are no longer our own. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. Congratulations. I, have, I don't think I've ever seen a book with this many reviews that are just mind-blowing. You must be so happily overjoyed and overwhelmed. <laughs> Well, it's always, I'm always thrilled to find that anyone likes what I'm doing. Really? Uh, but you've been doing this a long time. Yeah, but that question of how it will land and what people will take away from it it's true. is always the same. It doesn't matter how many books you've written. This is true. When did you first know you wanted to become a writer? Because I saw an interview with you, and you've always been a reader since you were little, right? Yes, and I actually thought I wanted to be a doctor growing up. I was very <laughs> sciencey. I discovered that I wanted to be a writer actually during a gap year when I really? traveled in Europe with a backpack and was pretty lonely and alienated. Of course, this was a time when you really were alone yes. when you were alone. Yes. <laughs> um, and I realized then that writing was just an essential part of my connection to the world. And I arrived at college knowing what I wanted to do. That's beautiful. Where did you go to school? University of Pennsylvania. Okay. And then from there, after school, what did you do? Well, I had a scholarship to study in England for two years, which was great because I did a lot of reading during that time. And then I moved to New York and began the first of many, many odd jobs that I did to support myself and just tried to get better. You know, I was not someone who showed great early talent. I was not a precocious writer. Mm -hmm. And my career has been pretty incremental until a visit from the Goon Squad, which was not published till I was already in my 40s. Amazing. So it was a slow process. Did you, did you have doubt? I, I'm a writer, and I've also interviewed numerous writers. Did you have doubt thinking, okay, maybe this is not going to happen? I have those doubts every single day. I mean, wow. I have an inner voice that is not always kind, and I have to learn. I learned early to work through that mm -hmm. and to tr not exactly ignore the, the sometimes cruel things that I say to myself, but to right. just keep going despite the fact that I have to listen to that. Yeah. So doubt is just an everyday part of my life. That negative self-talk, that's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, sometimes I'll think, you know, if I worked for a boss who spoke to me this way, <laughs> I would be quitting in a huff. <laughs> but I can't exactly quit myself. <laughs> so you just start talking to yourself. Cut it out. Knock it out. Who you, knock it off. Who do you think you're talking to? <laughs> well, I have a new rule, which is that when I'm making notes on my manuscript, that I not use language that's kind of a downer. Like, don't say things like, this is bad. Okay. You know, just focus on what needs to be improved rather than to chastising myself for things that aren't there yet. This is a funny question. Do you find that the, the books you work on that you criticize yourself the most are the most successful? <laughs> 
I think I'm pretty, I'm an equal opportunity critic. Okay. There's always a part with each book, or a phase, I should say, when I just am really, really questioning its value. And it seems to come at a different point for each book. Um, so it's, it's, I often find that I'm not a great judge of the quality of my work. Okay. And that's one reason I have so many readers who that's help good. me. And in fact, The Candy House, is dedicated to my writing group. I saw that. Who, yeah, and we meet, you know, sometimes every week, sometimes less often, and we show each other work, at, sometimes at a really early phase, and it's super helpful to get a sense of whether it's alive, whether there's a voice that has some spark in it, and whether big mistakes are happening that can be quickly ironed out and, uh, and removed early on. Amazing. So walk me through the process of this book. Did you have this idea formulated or did it evolve as you were going? It always is a process of evolving for me because with fiction, I start without any plan and write in a very improvisational way for my first draft. And I started the, some of the material for this book back in 2010 to 2013 and most of all, as with A Visit from the Goon Squad, this book is really driven by my own curiosity about peripheral characters that we see from the corner of our eye, know absolutely nothing about, just as we do in life. Okay. And yeah. the pleasure of then being kind of plunged into their interior life and looking at the world through their eyes. And one of the first people I was interested in is a guy named Bix Boughton, who has a very small role in A Visit from the Goon Squad. Mm -hmm. But when we meet him in the candy house, he is a tech icon who's very famous for having invented social media. But I he's having that. sort of a midlife crisis and has no idea what to do next. And he goes in disguise as a graduate student to a group of uh, Columbia professors to, in hopes of having some sort of spark of an idea that can lead him into a new invention. It was actually quite a while before I knew what that invention would be. I, really? It was really the, the stories of other people in the book that suggested to me what it was that Bix would ultimately invent. That's really fascinating. I thought maybe you came up with that idea initially, and then you built the stories and the people, the scenarios around it. No, I think what happened first was I had a sense of what I wanted the machine to do. And again, that mm -hmm. was very driven by curiosity. So, for example, there's a chapter where a woman, a grown woman, is able to view a day from her father's life from his point of view when he was a young businessman in San Francisco and she herself was only six years old. So she actually sees herself through his eyes as a six-year-old. And what she's trying to figure out, almost like a detective, is what changed her father at that time. Got and it. she's able to view a day when he visits a beatnik marijuana farm mm -hmm. and has a kind of revelation about a cultural change that's coming and a role that he wants to have in it. And he returns home a different person, in essence. And uh, that solves the mystery for her, which is what happened to her family. Amazing. You know, I, first of all, I want to say I feel like this could be a movie or a series well, here's hoping. <laughs> <laughs> and second of all, I was 
I was um, when I was driving over the station this morning. I'm thinking, I wonder if when you get up in the morning, if you all of a sudden you you feel these characters' lives and you come up with a new thing, like something just suddenly comes to you in those quiet moments. Well, you know, you're actually right because I do find that 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 period between being fully asleep and fully awake mm-hmm. is a very rich time for me. And sometimes I'll try to lie there and if I can keep the everyday worries and like to-do list out of my head and just let my ideas flow a little, I find that to be a very rich creative period. Sometimes it's just an excuse for slipping back to sleep. I'll (laughs) say like, oh, I'm going to lie here and work. Um, But I I do find that that, there is a floating quality that can happen there where ideas will come to me and almost like visions in the same way yes. that dreams are visions. Yes. I'll have a sense of where something should go in that time. I say that because I am a screenwriter. I studied screenwriting here at UCI. And so I'll wake up and I might have this idea like, well, where would they be going today? Or, you know, how will they resolve that? Or, you know, or who's going to come into their life? And so I was thinking of you and your work. Absolutely. I mean, I, I the best ideas come to me in the form of surprises. Mm-hmm. If I just sit down and with my rational mind think, okay, what should happen? The ideas I come up with are never good, uh, good enough. Right. So I need to get beyond that more rational side into the more impulsive, improvisational, blind uh, state in which things tend to appear more as visions than as ideas. Yes, exactly. Tell me about the uh, title of the book, The Candy House. I I heard it wasn't your first title idea. Oh my gosh. I find that ideas either, I mean, that titles either come instantaneously or they're really hard to come up with. Agonizing. This was one of the (laughs) latter cases. I had a bunch of other titles that were not that good and I knew weren't the right title. And then the the title was already in the book, which is always a good thing when it's kind of hidden there for me to find. But there's a point in the book where it's 1999 and two daughters of a famous record producer, actually the same man who goes into the uh, woods to the marijuana farm at, at an earlier point. Anyway, now he's a music producer and Napster has just come along and everyone in the music industry realizes that the industry is going to be in a free fall. So the daughters of this man want to persuade people not to use Napster. And they have an idea of of enacting a billboard campaign throughout America in which billboards will say, never trust a candy house. (laughs) And the idea is to warn people that this stuff is not really free. You're not getting music for free. You're just paying with something that is not money, but personal information, access to your own music and access to your computer. Yes. So they don't actually do this billboard campaign, but that was where the phrase came up in the book. I love it. And I love the cover, the whole design and everything. I do, too. It's, it looks to me like a present. I love wrapping presents. I love ribbons. And to me, it looks like a, it looks like it's ready to be given as a gift. Definitely. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with Jennifer Egan. She has uh, just authored her latest book, The Candy House. It's, uh, she's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author of A Visit from the Goon Squad. What else would you like to know about this book without giving too much away? 
Well, I guess another thing to mention, two things. One is that this book does not go in chronological order. We move around in time. And we also move around in and out of points of view. So it's really an ensemble story, kind of like what we expect more from like a television series in contemporary life, where we often don't know what the big story arc really is, but we're watching episode by episode, and it becomes clear over the course of a season what the big story is. But the fun for me is of letting, showing us someone from a very peripheral point of view and then looking at them from the inside and seeing how the world looks to them. So, for example, there's a chapter that's narrated as a stream of consciousness uh, of a 13-year-old girl who's incredibly worried about popularity Mm -hmm. and where she stands in the social order at her country club, and she makes a new friend whose name is Lulu, and Lulu is visiting the club and mentions that she plays Dungeons and Dragons and plays the character of a spy. And then in the next chapter, we're in Lulu's adulthood and she is working as a spy for the U.S. government and in the south of France is infiltrating a group of plotters against America and recording their behavior with a camera and a recorder that are implanted inside her body. It's in the 2030s. So going from seeing Lulu as a girl at the country club to being inside her mind as she does her spy work is, to me, kind of a fun juxtaposition. Definitely. But you also, um, you make this very, you know, 2022. You have a character that, that says, you know, my name is Charlene. She told us all, all of us flatly, don't call me Charlie anymore. Yes, well, that is because she has ha- suffered a terrible loss, which is that her younger brother has committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And she ha- has always been called Charlie, right. but she decides that she wants to get rid of that nickname and in a way uh, kind of draw attention to the fact that she is not the same person that she was before his death. Yes, and she is the same person who go, goes into her father's memory and views that important day in his life from his point of view. And one of the painful things that she learns during the, the time of being inside her father's perspective is that he loved her little brother much more than he loved her. And he thinks about that explicitly mm-hmm. and asks himself if it's okay that he loves his son more than he loves his daughter. So it's an example of how sometimes being inside someone else's thoughts is actually very painful, even as you might learn things that you would never have learned otherwise. Yes. But in some way, also, I should clarify, I I feel like you highlight some of the mental health struggles. Yes. Well, I had a brother who was schizophrenic, and we were very close. And he took his own life in his 40s mm. in 2016, really so out sorry. of exhaustion. He had yeah. tried so hard, but there was no way for him to be without symptoms um, and also, you know, conscious and productive. Sure. So I feel very close to uh, a person with mental health distress mm-hmm. and very aware of how what we would call, you know, crazy <laughs> is, in fact, very close to what we would also call 
mainstream or sane. You know, these are just matters of degree. And so I do find myself writing a lot about people with mental health challenges. Well, also, uh, you know, I refer to this time and a lot of research has as a mental health pandemic before we were in a crisis. Now we're in a mental health pandemic. And I feel that some of these characters are very timely. Yeah, I mean, there's also a lot of addiction in this novel and a lot of opioid addiction, of course, as there is in our culture. Yes. And um, that's something that I actually wrote about as a journalist for the New York Times Magazine. I wrote about women who have opioid dependency and become pregnant and what happens to them and their and their children. And I had the really the privilege of being part of a very strong community of women who were working very hard on their recoveries and I spent a fair amount of time at methadone clinics and got to know that world of recovery pretty well. So some of that pops up in this book. I noticed that. I noticed that. Yeah. I I want to ask you, um, I love how not every page is the same. We get to Lulu the Spy 2032. Could you talk about that? Yes. So that is the chapter in which Lulu, whom we've met at the country club, is now a spy and it looks very strange on the page. I wrote it originally for Twitter, but oh. that was Twitter at 140 characters. Okay. It's pretty different from now in that it was more like utterances of one sentence rather than a small paragraph. And what was fun about that was that I had to find a story that required telling in these short bursts. And it made sense in the context of this story because Lulu is basically recording little thought bulletins using a device that's implanted in her brain in which she learns a lesson from each action that she takes. And so whereas this might have been a kind of potentially stale spy spy story, maybe it's just a little bit too genre-esque, in these short utterances that have the quality of a list, it hopefully makes the genre feel a little bit renewed. Yes. Yeah. Well, it was nice. I I liked this chapter, the way it was laid out. It does look like, you know, tweets. (laughs) There's another chapter that's completely in the form of electronic communication. I see that. Uh, Whether it's (laughs) Slack or email, we're not really sure. Yes. Again, it's in the 2030s. Um, And again, you know, what I find with these unusual forms is that they let me tell stories that I couldn't have told conventionally. So there's a way in which I'm able to cover more ground and reach more different kinds of people in a novel if I can make some of these unusual structures work for me. Yeah, I have never seen anything like this before. I I thought, okay, these texts... And then, I, you know, I dove deeper into it. it it's uh, in the chapter C below, as you know. I thought it was really interesting the way you laid this out. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I mean, the fun of it is that, of course, if we can read people's correspondence, we can find out what they're trying to do mm-hmm. and what they are trying to look like they're trying to do. So there's a kind of ensemble quality to it in which, we know what people's real motives are, and we watch them try to get other people to do things. Yes. And it, it, it's a pretty humorous chapter. I love it. I, I want to ask you a question. Uh, I, I want to first share with the listeners that you can learn more about Jennifer if you visit jenniferegan.com. That's 
uh, Jennifer, as people typically spell Jennifer, double N, E-G-A-N.com. What has been, what has it been like releasing this book in the pandemic? Well, I feel very lucky because I've actually been able to go on a live in-person book tour, which no one has really been able to do for a couple of years now. Amazing. It is a little crazy. Like people are getting COVID all over the place and audiences are smaller than they used to be. And every day I was testing pretty much every morning just to make sure that I didn't give COVID to anyone. And somehow I seem to have escaped so far, although I did have it at the beginning of the pandemic. So maybe I have some immunity along with vaccines, et cetera. Yes. Um, But I feel so lucky to just be able to connect in person with readers. I love doing that. And writing is such a solitary enterprise. And it feels to me like closing the circle to bring a book out into the world and start to get a sense of what people make of it. Because sometimes it's not what I intended, even with all of the readers that I have. I want to read a few of these reviews. I they have so many. I put them up on my show blog, which um, is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. So let's see. Uh, Oprah Daly, inventive, effervescent, the Boston Globe, a marvel of a novel that testifies to the surpassing power of fiction, slate, radiant, exhilarating. And they go on and on. New York Times, Vox, New York Times Book Review, USA Today. What does this feel like? It feels always amazing and dreamlike to know that anyone is enjoying what I'm doing. But at the same time, I think what I especially love about those reviews is that they make the book sound fun, Yes, which is my number one goal always as a writer and, and as a reader. I want to be entertained and I want to be transported out of my everyday life into another world that has its own center of gravity and pulls me toward it. So if I feel like I've done that for other people, that is like that is my dream enacted. And what advice would you give to people that are listening that are writers? You know, you mentioned my website, and I would urge them to check it out because okay. I want people to understand how much quote-unquote failure occurs along the way to getting it right. Okay. So you can look at the first page of every chapter as it is published, And if you hover over the first paragraph, that dissipates, and you are looking at a marked-up manuscript of that paragraph. If you hover there, you get back to my handwritten first draft, which is dated. So you can really see how sloppily it all begins. And that leads to my number one piece of advice, which is be willing to write badly. Mm, Great advice. Bad writing can always be improved. But not writing at all gives you nothing to work on. And so I give myself permission to write badly and improve it. And that is the secret of my success, such as it is. (laughs) That's great advice. Trial and error. (laughs) Great advice. Now you're going out of the country in May. Yes, I'm going to go to, uh, let's see, the U.K., Holland, and Italy. Exciting. Very exciting. And uh, any stops in the U.S.? Well, I've already traveled uh, all over the place. Um, I've been to L.A. and Northern California. So I'm not sure when I will exactly be doing more uh, USA events other than the Northeast. But it has been a real pleasure to actually see the country, this time by train. Nice. So I got all the way across by train. I love it. And the longest leg was Chicago to San Francisco, 52 hours. 
Oh, whoa. <laughs> it was amazing. But beautiful. Yes. Oh, my God. There's so much beauty. That's beautiful. Well, I want to thank you so much for calling into the show, and congratulations on your latest book. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Be well. Enjoy your tour. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. That was Jennifer Egan talking about her latest book, The Candy House. If you missed any part of this conversation, it will be up on the show blog within an hour after I wrap up. And the show blog again is getthefunkoutshow.kuci.org. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. 